Mark down in Houston is recovering from shoulder surgery. And I'm looking for part-time work. I got laid off just before the holidays. Oh, wow. Well, well. Wow. Ho, 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 Merry Christmas. Kind of. Praying for courage daily. I have a, a friend, Carol, who is just in her 50s and she's had all kinds of surgical things go wrong. And she's looking at ankle surgery this month and she's got to have shoulder surgery still. She just. Everything. Everything. What's her name? Carol. Carol? Yeah, just for strength and perseverance. Yeah. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, thank you again, Lord, for our life um, f from you, for the gift of yourself always, particularly in the Mass this morning, for your words to us. Um, you are the Word. You offer yourself through the prophets. Um, um, it's good to hear these readings. Um, thank you for Father's words on them, um, how good they were. For the work that we do together here, um, you are here in this work, um, no doubt, even though veiled and, and not always explicit, um, hidden um, as you are in life. Strengthen us in our efforts to read well, trusting that when we do we will learn and to be to see you more clearly in the world around us and to be strengthened in our faith um, knowing that even if you're not visible we know more and more surely um, that you are present you ask us always to thank you no matter what happens it can be we can be at death's door but you um, the words in the mass are to thank you everywhere and always let that be so no matter what our troubles are no matter um, Faith means believing in you when we have no reason to do it anymore. Strengthen us in our faith. Help us to bring it to everything we do, particularly with each other. Um, ask a blessing on Carol. Watch over her um, in the um, operations that are being performed. Um, most of all, um, strengthen her in a spirit of fortitude um, and faith. Um, help her to hold on through um, whatever difficulty she faces. Um, ask a special blessing on Megan. Um, ups and downs. Um, help take away the downs. Um, hard. Um, um, it's what happens to all of us daily so often. Um, let her faith grow steadily. Um, so that she um, she recovers her health and is on her feet. feet. Um, strengthen Tom and Linda in their trust and faith. Um, in some ways, almost more important. Um, she will find that faith in them. Um, <clears throat> be with Mark 
um, in his recovery, watch over him, um, and let the difficulty strengthen him in his faith. And with Bev, um, help her to be resourceful, to work hard, um, and not get discouraged. Um, and um, to find something that um, will be good for her and for the people that she works with. We are glad to have this time together and um, help us all to be strengthened by it. We offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay. Um, very quick review. If such things are possible with me, um, suddenly break. Um, Thanks. <clears throat> this is going to relate directly to um, some of the things we have to say about Gavin and the yes. role of the chivalric knight, the courtly romance theme that runs through the town that, that remember, is parodied in the Hamlet. Um, here it's, um, there's a satiric element to it, but it's very, very different. I want to read this because um, Remember that the love tradition before Christ enters the world is, is basically erotic. The two forms of love before Christ came into the world um, were eros and um, I can't remember the Greek name for friendship. Agape. Agape is it's closer to a Christ self-sacrificing love. Um, hmm? Something like that, yeah, yeah. The two forms of love before Christ entered the world were eros and friendship, the love of friendship can be philia. Um, and if you were, those of you who've done Dante remember that um, at the top of the purgatory, Dante deals with three types of poetry. Those of you who did this will remember that because they define the, the real nature of love as we experience it daily in our lives. One of them is a platonic idealized love. In, in some ways, that love is experienced um, at, at the remove of the body. The passions aren't allowed a place in it. One loves another platonically, which means there's nothing sexual about that love at all. It's opposite, we can call it illicit love or passionate, unlawful love, <clears throat> some perversion of love. You can call it prostitution or even just an illicit love. But in the middle is an adult, Christian, Catholic um, love as Christ um, revealed it to us that involves sex. Okay? And if you remember the Divine Comedy, you remember when Dante gets up to the siren, we already have hints of those three kinds of love that he's going to encounter at the top of the purgatory because there when he and Virgil um, stop for the night, he has that vision of the siren. And remember, when she first appears to him, she's stuttering and yellow, sallow face. But as he looks at her, she turns beautiful, 
And at some point, Dante cannot free himself from her. This is as close to Gavin when Gavin talks about Helen, Semiramis, and Lilith. I don't know if you know Helen was the cause of the war. Semiramis was this Greek. Huh? Babylonian. Yeah, this um, beautiful, um, um, intensely sexual queen of the East in Babylon. And Lilith is, belongs to a, um, a apocryphal biblical tradition. She's looked at as a woman who was either created before Eve or after, who is the dark side of Eve. And I, I mean, that's the Jewish tra tradition behind it. But her powers are enormous. She, she's almost a succubus. And I, and I mean this very literally. She represents that power in woman that makes it impossible for man to separate himself from her. We had glimpses of this in Homer, if you remember, with Circe and Calypso. Remember, boy, it's really warming. Um, <laughs> no happy medium. Um, Calypso had Odysseus on her island for eight years. Remember, he could not get free without divine help. And he could not free himself from Circe without Hermes' help again. Homer's very clear about the power that woman has over man. And in both those instances, there's something possessive. She sees him that way. Um, Gavin is the chivalric knight in this book, and he has this habit of looking at her in a way that shows us he's taken <clears throat> by her. Um, his sister, she has that wonderful line, what does she say, you don't... You don't give yourself to those women. You don't marry them. You commit suicide for them. You can't marry them. You commit suicide for them. Um, because they're, in some sense, larger than life. And that's the picture we had of Eula, remember, in the Hamlet, the, this ejaculate, Olympian ejaculation that um, Frenchman Ben almost couldn't contain her. Um, she, she reveals something larger than life in, in her sexuality. So we have these, these extremes of an idealized love and an overly erotic love. The Christian love is the mean. It, is, it, in, it involves sex, but it, it's also virtuous and lawful. So the struggle of a man in a marriage is to bring his passions in line with the law and courtesy. Um, and all of these things come into play in what happens with Gavin because that's his struggle. I wanted to read Shakespeare's Sonnet 130 because it seems to me it, it, it's, it's an illustration of how he's aware of this whole tradition and makes it clear to us. Now remember, Shakespeare was aware of the Petrarchan, the Petrarch, the Petrarchan um, love tradition. In that tradition, Petrarch declared his love for Laura and wrote these beautiful sonnets, but all of them were full of similes about tempest storms and um, tears, and he couldn't love her enough. He puts Laura on a pedestal and virtually worships her. That's a, it's, a, it's, it's moving towards that platonic extreme. Um, Shakespeare is aware of that tradition. He's read it. All, all the English poets would have, they would have known that tradition. They would have, they would have been raised on it. This is his response, okay? 
in some ways it goes directly to what we're going to um, come to when we look at Gavin. Sonnet 130. My mistress's eyes are nothing like the sun. Coral is far more red than her lips red. If snow be white, why then her breasts are done. If hairs be wires, black wires grow on her head. I have seen roses damasked, red and white, but no such roses see I in her cheeks. And in some perfumes is there more delight than in the breath that from my mistress reeks. I love to hear her speak, yet well I know that music hath a far more pleasing sound. I grant I never saw a goddess go. You can hear, you can hear him parroting Petrarch, because Petrarch would be, there goes a goddess, she's walking above light, the light shines through her. I grant I never saw a goddess go. My mistress, when she walks, treads on the ground. And yet by heaven, I think my love as rare as any she belied with false compare. By the way, I want to, so hold on to this, okay? We've got over-idealized and an illicit love. The love between Spain and Eula is an illicit. It's, it's an adulterous love. And the mean, which is what all of us have been called to, according to our faith. <clears throat> Remember Dante, too, because Dante and Shakespeare are both on the same ground here. When Dante returns to paradise, remember, he's married. He's got a wife. But he loved Beatrice more than anybody because he saw in her an image of virtue and the Trinity. He saw God shining through her. So one of the things that, as Christians, we're called to do is to love one another, knowing that we're in, we're in a fall, that we carry our faults with us, but... Um, learning to see an image of Christ in each other. That's the struggle. That's the, the call. And as you know, calls are not easy to fulfill. That's our... Do you guys care if I open the door? Huh? Oh, the noise is going to be... Um, I wonder if you can... I mean, open it if you want. See if it's bad. Yeah. I'm going to push yeah. this open and just see. Just, yeah. yeah. It's off right now. Is it off? Yeah. It kicked off about five minutes ago. Oh, did it? Okay. Okay. So quick summary of the Hamlet. Remember, the Hamlet begins um, in this um, agrarian pastoral world, Frenchman's Bend. It's, in a sense, it's an Arcadian world in, in the sense that Arcadia is an image of an idealized world. It, it's one of the images we inherit from classical Greece, Arcadia. Don, sorry, can you close it, Don? Sorry. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, and some of the signs of that are that people sit around, they lounge. Um, it, we almost never see the men working. And we know the women are. The women are at home always working. The men out are on porch talking. Um, and when any business goes on, it's undertaken in a spirit of trust. When people go into the store, they leave money there when Varner's not around. He doesn't have to be there. So a spirit of trust holds this community together. It's almost like a pastoral Arcadian world. But, in, but 
underneath this world, there is this um, strong spirit of acquisitiveness and um, coveting in the men. And it's very, very strong. Um, and we see it most of all in the male love of power, the, the way in which they identify with horses. Remember, um, the, the men are described as loving it. We see that all the way through from the beginning to the end in the spotted horses scene when the Texan brings those horses there and the men can't take their eyes off of them. It's a little bit like men today with roadsters and cars. Young boys in high school growing up preoccupied with putting together a car and then going out and dragging or roadster car shows. You know that there's this male love of power and there's an ego in it and you see it in the way they fix up their cars to set them next to each other so they can say, mine's better looking yours, or they drag. They get on the street and gun their engines in to see who can, who can win. And so that spirit is very much present from the beginning to the end of that story. It defines what all the men do and the way they scan each other. So when it opens, um, it opens with that long story of Ab having been bested by Pat Stamper and um, living with the sting of that, the shame of it, and wanting to get back. So we have that long story of Ab um, wanting to pull one over on Stamper, and you know the story. I mean, he, he gives him that awful hag of a horse and ends up buying it without even knowing it's the same horse, but it was inflated because Pat Stamper put a bicycle pump and blew him up and made, you know, I mean, he paints him. One of, the, one of the men, actually one of the men, if you all know Bob and Marcy from the evening class, Bob was laughing that night we were going over and he said, Bob, you don't know, but he, somewhere in Poland or Czechoslovakia, he said, we grew up like that in the, in the uh, what do you call the, the, the farm shows, the, where you sell pigs and yeah, what's, what are those? But, but fair. Fair, fair, yeah. Those, he, said, he, said, he said he grew up with people doing that with hogs and pigs and chickens and, and the scamming that went, it was just sort of inherent in the, in the annual fair. Anyway, you know the story. And then, and then it's followed with Jody um, wanting to take advantage of Ab because Ad comes to him to ask for a job, I mean, a, to rent a farm, remember, and he thinks he's gonna make money. I hope you all look at this and find yourselves, because it just seems to me, we rent. You know, when you get into business, you wanna do business and you wanna make a profit. So what this whole story is about is that what happens when that profit motive takes over and defines your life, that that directs what you do. We see it sort of pure. Anyway, he, um, he, he, he learns very quickly that Ab will have the better of him because he knows he may have his own farm burned up, that, that Ab has this reputation of farm barn burning and that he is actually now under Flem's power because he's afraid that, or, or Ab, Ab might burn his barn. So he started out thinking he's got all this power and we find him being powerless and subject to Ab and, and going and in a shameful way, making it clear that he'll do whatever Ab wants. I mean, it's just shameful to watch it. And no sooner does he do that when he comes out, and, but Flem comes out from behind a tree 
and puts him in the same place and Flem ends up being in the store taking his place and that's the beginning of the climb of the Snopes. Um, so we're watching an agrarian community infected by this coveting, this spirit of acquisitive, of getting ahead, particularly in men. And we're watching Flem Snopes rise and the other Snopes following him. Set off against this, um, this, this honor code between men and the way that they go at it to do, to do one up on another, is this um, sexual code and this code of, of courtly love. There's no other word for it that's gone. We already saw that in The Sound of the Fury with Quentin. So we already, we've seen the South based itself on an English culture and a chivalric culture that looked back to the past. Um, and, and this is after the war, so we're watching that spirit in collapse. We saw it collapse in Sound of the Fury in the Compson family. <coughs> we're seeing it here. That, that sense of courtly love, of manners, that was identified with a southern gentleman, because that's what it meant to be a southern gentleman, is in collapse. And we see it, it's gone, it's, it's not present in the men anymore. We see it treated in parody in what Ike does with a cow. Because what he does is an exact <laughs> replica of what the courtly lover would do with a beloved. All the stage pursuing her, she runs away, he goes after her, he feeds her, he takes care of her, he, he puts um, wreaths on her head, um, he protects her from the fire, he rescues her. All of that's presented um, in a touching way, but it's an idiot. So in a sense, it's an, it's an inversion of what no longer is, that once was, but no longer exists. Um, and we see the, the harsh realities of, of the love relationships as a part of that theme. Um, the women are unfailingly faithful to the men in a way that men aren't. Um, Houston grows up in Lucy, does everything she can to help him get through school. He does everything he can to run away from her. He flees. He, he, he takes up with that woman, the prostitute. They live together. He's ready to go back to Texas and she wants to come with him. And she says, I will, I will move into a room. I'll be there. You know, she, so even though he won't marry her, she offers himself completely, unconditionally. He can use her anytime she wants. But he leaves her and then goes back and he marries Lucy and you know what happens. The stallion kills her and it's interesting the way Faulkner keeps using stallions and cows. The stallions are a masculine image. The cows are very feminine. They give milk. They feed. They nurture. The stallion is an image of power. That's why the men love it. That's why they're so taken with horses. Stallion kills Lucy and Houston is distraught. Set off against that is Mink's relationship with his wife. Remember when Ratliff comes to, to, to really feel him out, he almost slaps her and tells her to get back in the house because um, she's, inter she's interested in the sewing machine. There's no way they can afford it. Um, um, he kills Houston over a dollar pound um, fee. When Mink is sent to jail after killing Houston, his wife goes to stay with Varner. Before Mink's caught, he goes to her that night. Huh? 
No, if she goes to stay, she's with Varner. And Mink goes to see her. Remember, Lump told him that his wife wanted to see him. He went. She comes out to meet him that night. He's, he's fleeing. The, the police are looking for him. He's buried the body. And there's that scene where she says, I hate you, I hate you. Um, and then she grabs him. And you can watch her, the fierceness of her anger. She said, um, I'd like to be the one to hang you because I would hang you and bring you back to life and hang you again and bring you back to life. And I mean, she's furious. And in all those words, what she's saying is, I love you. I mean, you know, she, she, um, she doesn't want him to die. So we get this whole range of passions and emotions in the love relationships, and behind them is a parody of the chivalric romance tradition that was once a part of the South, it's gone, that looks back to the Middle Ages, the Christian Middle Ages. If I could put it anyway, it would be, it would be a little bit like, it would be a little bit like this. Oops, I should have. It would, it would look something like this. If you had the world of the Iliad, and the Odyssey, and the Aeneid. And those of you who have done these works know that there's a love element uh, at the center of every one of them. Helen and Paris, Odysseus and Penelope, Aeneas and um, Creusa, his first wife, Dido, remember whom he has an affair with for a year, and then finally Lavinia. Um, the Roman woman who will be his wife that will in ensure the place of marriage in the founding of Rome. If you take that love interest into the Middle Ages, you've got Christ who, who shows us agape. It's not here. Is she okay? She's okay. You've got agape, right? Um, Caritas, the self-sacrificing love. So what happens is you take this ancient pagan heroic code into the Middle Ages and you've got the Christian knight. Because evil is always going to be present. Somebody has to be there to fight it. Just has to be. But what we see is a transformation in the ideal. So it's not just a... And it's interesting, if those of you who have done this will see this. People who don't read those well won't. There is a self-sacrificing element already in the pagan world that anticipates Christ. Because you know that Achilles is a part of that honor code where everybody wants to do what they do because they expect something in return. You, you, get, you get booty in accord with how great an athlete, a great a warrior you are, or, or your position. Remember, Agamemnon was a king and he had mountains of booty. He had all the booty. In fact, it's one of the things that made... Achilles outraged. Your worth was determined by the booty that people give you. That was the great flaw, because if your honor depends on your financial wealth, what's given to you, it, it can be taken away. The whole poem is, is, has as its end to show that there is an intrinsic good in man that's transcendent. Was that clear? Because in Book 9, remember when, Ag when Agamemnon sends his embassy and he gives him a ton of stuff to get back in the war? Achilles says, such honor is a thing not. Such honor is a thing I need not. I, 
I am already honored in Zeus's ordinance. He's turned towards a transcendent sense of honor. It's not conferred by external, by wealth. It's intrinsic, that man has this intrinsic dignity. After Patroclus' death, Achilles decides to go back into the war. He, he, he admits that he let everybody down. I mean, that's the, turning, the great turning point of the, of the epic. He gives himself up. He knows when he goes back into the war, he's going to die. So even though there's this sense that honor is conferred by external things, in the, the, the great value of the Iliad is at the beginning of our culture, with the Genesis and, and um, what follows Genesis? Exodus. Exodus, with those two books, we've got a founding. In the Bible, in Genesis and Exodus, it's about a founding. It's the founding of what will lead to Christ. And in the Iliad, you've got a founding of a people around it. This new idea of a soul, that there's something inherently good in man's nature. So even in the pagan world, there was this understanding on the part of the great poets, this sacrifice, this self-sacrificing element of man. But Christ makes it clear, and, um, and not only does he make it clear, but he offers a divine element in himself. That's what we receive in the sacraments. That he is actually present. So that something divine, act, not just in our thoughts, not in thought, in actual physical being, enters our world. And what it produces is the Christian night. Now the Christian night, there's two forms of, um, of courtly romance that are important to see. Um, it gets passed down through the literary tradition. Guys, you have you don't have my notes over there, do you? to this chivalry um, tradition that gets passed on. One of them's through what we call the um, chanson de, de geste, the songs of deeds. Um, the Song of Roland, if any of you know, is an example of that. In the Song of Roland, the, the martial um, virtues are combined with the Christian virtues of charity. So a soldier, Roland, who's a soldier in Charlemagne's army, has all the virtues of a warrior, but he also has the virtues of a belief in Christ. And he, he dies in that song. It's a very short book. It's called The Song of Roland. So we see the, the ancient um, ideal of the male hero as a man of heroic deeds, but not just living for honor, but... Um, Living Christ, making Christ real. That's one, that what's called the chanson de... The songs of deeds. Chanson de geste. The other is courtly romance itself, and courtly romance, they're, they're, they really do overlap. 
The courtly romance was a tradition that grew out of the courts um, that was associated with an, arist an aristocracy. We, we see it in King Arthur's romances that um, it's particularly true of all the knights in, um, in the, King the King Arthur tradition. They, they, um, they give themselves to their king as their liege, their lord, or to a woman as their liege, their lord. And they, they give themselves up by, by performing heroic deeds that could cost them their lives. And if they do this for a woman, they have to do it with a sense of giving themselves up sexually. Um, one of the great examples of the courtly romance tradition is um, Sir Gowan and the Green Knight. Sir Gowan and the Green Knight. Again, it's a little short book. So what we're seeing passed down through the Middle Ages and into the South in America is this courtly romance chivalric tradition. Um, Quentin inherited it, and we see it dying. That he tries to live it out. We've already gone through this. We, he tried to live it out and failed. He had a father who was alcoholic because after the war, it seemed like their whole culture was destroyed, crushed. <coughs> Gavin is still living it, and everything that happens between him and Lin Eula, and then him and Linda, will show that that. The struggle to make that tradition real is still very much alive in him, with all sorts of ironies. But. So, um, at the heart of at the heart of the Hamlet was this theme of the of the um, courtly lover. Except in the Hamlet, it's parodied. We see it in Ike. And everything he does, it's sad. It, I, I, I think it's one of the most extraordinary things Faulkner ever did. Some people are disgusted by it because it's a man wooing a cow, but if you see what Faulkner's doing, it's hard not to see how tender it is. And if you remember the scene, you remember when you're reading, when you come to that section, you read, you get this description of the lover waiting for the beloved. You know, he's, he's by the creek and it's pastoral, the trees are there, the, the, it's dawning, the sun's coming. He's waiting, suddenly we hear the footsteps, and it's all played out, and we've got a sense that there's a lover and a beloved, and then two pages into it, we discover that it's Ike waiting for a cow. Um, Fogg knows exactly what he's doing. I mean, it's, to me, it's extraordinary. And what it does is it casts such a, an oblique, dark light on everything that Houston does with his wife and everything that Mink does with his. And, and we also, with Flem, with Eula. So with Eula and Flem, courtly romance is degraded. With what happens with McCarran and Eula, remember he has sex with her and takes off. So in, in the Hamlet, love and law do not come together. Marriage is, is not held up as a, in a very positive light. So that's, that's what what we left behind us in the Hamlet. Remember the Hamlet closes with the Spotted Horses episode with all the men getting taken up with this scam, this, this Texan and phlegm trying to make money again. And it ends with um, Ratliff being tricked by phlegm so that he buys Frenchman's Ben. He's been the one man who, who has been a soft, solid moral center. He's the one who closes the plank Remember when everybody's watching Ike in the barn, Little John's barn, 
he nails up the plank, he tells the men to get away. He's so, he's so offended. It's like the beginnings of pornography. They open the board to, to, to watch Ike with a cow, whatever Ike does, like sodomy acts. And, and he's the one who helps Mink's wife when Mink goes to jail. No Stopes steps forward to help her. Nobody from the family steps forward. Um, Ratliff takes her in and pays for her. And, she, and remember, she's, she's absolutely faithful. She visits Mink every day. So love is strained, cracking in the Hamlet. And the Hamlet ends with a very dark view because Flem scams Ratliff, who's been the one figure that I think we would put our hopes on. And he himself um, is tripped. So the Hamlet leaves us with a very, very dark view. When we move from the Hamlet to the town, we move from this Arcadian pastoral agrarian world to a world of respectability. And the marriage is at the center of it. So finally now we, we shift from that world and one of the central themes of the, of the um, town is the um, marital relationship between um, Charles Mallison and um, Maggie who is Ratliff's sister, and Ratliff is staying with her. And it produces, I think, some of the funniest scenes in the novel. It's just wonderful. But, but we, we're allowed, finally, to enter family life. And now think about that, because you've got family life at the center of it. You've got Flem and Eula as a married couple, but Despain and Eula are having an affair, and the whole town knows about it. So, so what are we dealing with in the town? The two, the two major themes are that Flem has moved out of this agrarian country world into the city, into a city now, it's Jefferson City, it's no longer Frenchman's Bend, and he's beginning to take over. He becomes plant superintendent, um, he, will, um, he will have to step down, and um, he will become vice president of the bank. And eventually he'll become president, and in the mansion, he will buy a mansion. So one of the great themes of the town is Flem moving up. He's an image of the American ideal of being upward mobile, of getting ahead of other people, and, and using people with no reservations at all. I mean, he has no scruples about using anybody or any situation if it will help advance his interests. So, once again, that at the center of it are all these notions of romantic love because, um, because Gatlas has this special relationship to you. I want to wait so I can read some of these passages because they're really telling. Um, what was I... What should be added to this should be here, should be right next to this is if the Hamlet gives us the, call what, incubation, the parturition, the, the, the coming to birth, you know, Flem Snopes entering the southern culture, um, the town shows a community beginning to wake up. The central theme, I think, of the, of the town is 
a southern community beginning to learn what evil is and take responsibility. In the Hamlet, everybody watched it, except for Ratliff. In the town, Gavin, who's a town official, and Ratliff and Chick, this young boy, are all trying to keep up with Flynn. If you've been reading, you know, Flynn is always one step ahead. He's always doing, that's why the, you know, at the very end of that first section, when, he, when, the, when, the, um, when the plant scan falls apart, they talk about the tower as a monument. And he said, no, 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 it wasn't a monument, it was a footstep. Because a monument is a testament to a person's deeds. A footstep leaves a track that they discovered then that Flem's on the way and they've got to try to keep up. So one of the suspenseful, you, this is a, a suspense novel. One of the questions that we're left with all the time is, will anybody be able to bring him down? Will anybody be able to catch him? So those are the, those are the major themes. The, the narrative structure, um, if, you take, if you take a look at the notes I gave you, you should, you have them there. You should, do you, you all have the two circles? If you look at the, um, if you look at the opening chapter, wait, wait, let me give the whole thing. If you look at the whole thing, it's something like this. We're the, we're the reader, and here's the narrators. You've got Ratliff, Gavin, and Chick, who gets most of what he gets through Gallant, right? So all of these people are involved in the Jefferson City story, yes? This is, their, this is the story. But we get it through this exchange between Ratliff, Gavin, and Chick. And Chick isn't even born yet, so he gets a lot of what he gets from Gallant, who's 13 when it all begins. Chick isn't even born. Now, I want to come back to that um, because it seems to me it's one of the most important things about the, um, the story. I have a quick question, and maybe it's not time for it yet, but is, is there some significance to the fact that it was Turtle and Tom Tom that kind of actually won up yeah. Flynn for the first Let's time? Let's wait, because I'm going to get there. Um, it's, it's like you, you're always one step ahead of me. Um, we're gonna we're gonna do that right now. Just um, here's three questions that I like to put out, just for you to keep on your mind, and then I'd like to take a few minutes to see if we can answer them at the end. Why does Faulkner use this narrative structure? If you look at the Hamlet, you haven't read the Mansion, but the Mansion will be a detached narrator. The narrative structure of the Hamlet is like Sound and Fury. We're in the minds of characters. Right? We're in Ratliff's mind, we're in um, Gavin's mind, we're in Chick's mind. Just like we were in, in uh, um, Quentin's and Jason and Benji, thanks. Yeah? So we're in the mind. This, by, this is a lyric mode. That's not narrative. We're in the inside of a person. That's a lyric mode. But in every case, what's preoccupying those persons is what's happening outside of them. 
So each one of them gives us a glimpse of what's going on, and they're exchanging, they're learning from each other. And Chick, as the youngest, is learning from the two older men. Why did Faulkner do that? I don't want to answer it now, but that to me is a major, because it goes to this question of form. What's, what's it about? Second, I don't want to forget the next minute. Father's homily. How do we understand Ratliff's response to Eula when she comes to him and offers herself? Or sorry, Gavin. He is outraged. He's so angry. He insults her. Um, it, to me, it sort of crystallizes this theme of romantic love. You've got the Malisons, who are a married couple, and Eula and Spain having their affair. When Ratliff does what he does, he fights for her at the ball. Sorry. When Gavin, when Gavin fights for her at the ball and then takes to Spain to court, and remember he has no suit. I mean, if you watch, if you watch it, it's Faulkner at his best. He's parodying. Gavin's a lawyer. If you look at that part of the chapter, Gavin's language is all inflated. It, it's just pretentious. There's nothing. He has no suit, but he's using all of his intellectual powers to concoct something to get back at this man he wants to bring him down. When Eula discovers what he's done, she comes to him that night and offers herself. We've got to look at that scene. Okay? Why, how do we understand Gavin and what is Faulkner showing us about Gavin as um, a, a courtly knight, a chivalric knight? And the third question I have is, I want you guys to take these seriously because they, they go to the catechetical part of what we're doing. Is God present in what's going on? Is God present? I don't want to answer those right now, but, and I don't want to forget Father's homily. Father's homily was about that moment when um, the Israelites asked for a king. Samuel says, no. If you, if you heard Father's homily, you know how, how, how just sound it was and right on the mark. Um, governments are always corrupt. The, the Israelites wanted to be like other nations. They had a warning from God and said, do this and you'll be sorry. The, the term liberal, liberal government to me is an ironic irony. If you watch liberal governments, they always increase because they want to achieve some good. They're, it's usually compassion. They want to achieve some good. Um, but the irony is, and I'm going to go out on a limb here. I may get hung here. Um, just be brief. You might. No. Um, <laughs> ask me not to breathe, Doc. Here, here's the irony. Liberal government. The liberal government always wants to achieve some in. But the way to do it is to increase its powers. And as those powers increase, so do corruptions. And one of the consequences of that movement is people take less responsibility for themselves for doing good. The liberals are really good at wanting the government to do things for them. If you watch the, the rich culture, the, the celebrity culture, you know, the banking culture, they want a large government, but they don't want to make sacrifices themselves. I mean, how many athletes or stars give up their $30 million a year? Um, one of the ironies of that passage in Samuel is when you give power over to a government, you become its slave. The whole of the people, for the people, by the people. The whole spirit of our democracy was a limited government. All the checks and balances that were built into our constitution. What we're watching in this movement from a village community that almost has no sense of government, 
They're agrarian. They rule their own. They're comfortable. They sit around. They talk. They put money in a bowl, and and Jody trusts that they will. Um, there's almost no holding accountable. People, father's words this morning. They're all. They're close to virtue. They're not, but they're close to virtue. Phlegm comes into this world. This evil thing. He starts using people. That is, he takes advantage of their innocence. And in their innocence, all this stuff happens. The great theme of the trilogy is people growing up and learning to take responsibility for evil. Not the government. It's a community. So what's happening in the town, if we watch it, is the, the burdens that people take on to answer this. That's what the town's about. Um, it's a town of respectability, very Protestant. And at its center are these notions of love and the threats that are posed to them. Okay, Eulen and Despain are having an affair. Eulen comes and offers herself to Gavin. So one of the interesting things about the town is when evil begins to go to work, the passions in some strange way are set loose. Strangely, it's one of the dynamics that when phlegm starts to go to work, an affair comes out of it, and all, and all sorts of strange things. Remember when, um, when the Cotillion Ball comes up, Gavin wants to send a rose, a, a bouquet to Eula. Maggie says, she's a respectable wife. She says, no way you're going to do that. So what does he do? He says he has to send a corsage to every woman in town. So And all the husbands... Because now that Gavin's done that, they have to follow suit. They have to do what they didn't want to do. They're outraged at Gavin. And Mrs. Rouncewell, Mrs. Rouncewell makes a fortune because there's a run on bouquet. She has to send out. So what we're watching are, is this unleashing of erotic powers. That when he comes into town, all these other things get set off. And one of the great ironies about it is not only the run on Rouncewell's store, is that Gavin will fight to Spain, he'll get a black eye, he'll be bloodied, he'll get beaten up, and one of, one of the most beautiful subtle ironies of the whole a year later, Chick is born. And if you read the, the t I'm going to read the table scene in a, in a few minutes, if you read what happens between Maggie and, and Charles, the senior, the, her husband, you have said, there's no passion in that marriage at all, there's none. She calls him a dead fish, I can't remember the word, but a mammoth or a... There's no passion, but once all this stuff gets going, the chick is born. That's not an accident. Something is set loose in this town, and, and it's comic, it's funny, um, it's, a, it's a community learning to deal with evil. So I go back to my question, is God present in what's happening? Remember Father's homily. Um, the last thing you want to do is have a king, and the people say, no, we want a king. Here you've got a southern, a southern community that's lost the Civil War that does not want to subject itself to northern law. It was innocent, and I mean you, innocent in the bad way. I hope you understand that. We're, we're not to be innocent because we're not. Innocence is not a good thing. When we first marry, I think most of us are <laughs> stupidly innocent. Um, Christ asks us to, to be at what? To be as wise as the serpent and gentle, we're supposed to be on guard with evil. I don't think we are. Until, until we learn to struggle in our marriages and then you know that we grow out of our innocence. 
But it was an innocent community, but now it's, it's learning to take responsibility for itself. Now put it on the government to learn to deal with it. So we're watching a community come together. So in my mind, it speaks directly to what we're called to do. I thought what Father's words were, were um, speaking to this morning in the homily. So those are the overarching things. I want to, I want to look at a couple of scenes. I want to briefly look at the, at the power plant. Um, so how did Father wrap up the homily today? We, we weren't there. I'm just curious. That's all. He just, he, I mean, he, his emphasis was that, that to be aware um, that governments unfailingly fail, that they, the, they corrupt over time, for, for us to be aware of that. And Any questions on this, on the, on, the, on the major themes of the town, before we look at some episodes? It's a funny story. I hope you're enjoying it. It's, it. Suzanne and I read it, and very often I'll be reading. Sometimes I have to do other things, but I'll, we'll be in bed, and I'll, then suddenly she'll just burst into laughter, and she won't stop. Um, it's a funny, funny, it's a delightful book. Now, it seems to me it speaks so directly to us at this time. If there's any meaning to the work that we're doing together, it's to be more aware and live these things, to actually live them, not just read them and put them in our heads. No questions? Okay, I wanna look at, I wanna look at some. Um, I wanna look at, you all got the timelines, right? And the notes. They should help. There may be some inaccuracies. I may, um, I put this together quickly and I'll have to look at it again, but I, I, they should help. They should be helpful. Okay, let's, <coughs> let's take a look at just a couple of the episodes and then I wanna come back to these questions. Um, let's go to the beginning um, because I, I, the more I read this book and the more I think about it, the, the more I'm fascinated by Chick for a reason I don't want, I don't want to um, reveal right now, but um, you know that the, this, the, here, let me, let me at least begin to put it out a little bit. You know that as we go through the story, um, we're getting it from three narrators who are contemporary with the events, right? As they're unfolding, they're narrating. So, Rabin's speaking. Ratliff is speaking to Gavin um, um, when Snopes pulls this off, say, or or when the Despain affair becomes public. The two men speak to each other. They're aware of what's going on. So we get an exchange between them that corresponds to the actual sequence of events taking place outside of them. Right. So they are one with the events. We're, we, we are with, it's as if we were growing up and telling the story of our struggles in our marriages or with abortion or pro-life or we would be talking with each other about a current affair that troubled us in some way and we felt we had to do something. So we're getting it here that way. <coughs> but here's the problem, even though the, the, the people are narrating it, 
at a, at a time that's simultaneous with the events, Chick is a part of that exchange, but he hasn't even been born yet. Now I want to come, I don't want to make much of this, but I, I want to start with it because the book will begin with Chick, it will end with him. He's not even born when Flem comes to Jefferson. Gowan is 13 years old, he says that, and Chick's not born. He won't, he won't be born until, um, this is about, I can't remember, you have to look at the, the, the dates, but he won't, he won't get born until around the fourth or fifth chapter. It's, it's, um, he's born a year after the Cotillion Ball. The Cotillion Ball takes place in 1913. He's born in 1914. So we're, we're a ways off from that. Um, So let's turn to the beginning. <laughs> this is chapter one. I wasn't born yet, so it was Cousin Gowan who was there and big enough to see and remember and tell me afterwards when I was big enough for it to make sense. That is, it was Cousin Gowan plus Uncle Gavin, or maybe Uncle Gavin, rather plus Cousin Gowan, because Gowan is actually his, I keep wanting to call him uncle because he's older, but he's, in fact, he's not an uncle, he's a cousin. So if I call him uncle, just excuse it, it's, we're trying to acknowledge he's just, he has the wisdom and the age of an uncle. He, Cousin Gowan, was 13. His grandfather was grandfather's brother, so by the time it got down to us, he and I didn't know what cousin to each other we were. Are they second cousins? Yes. Second cousins? So he, so he just called all of us except grandfather cousin, and all of us except grandfather called him cousin and let it go at that. Gowan's parents moved off um, to a foreign state, a state affair, probably to Africa or um, where was it? Um, Very funny. China. China, yeah, China. Um, um, you're, you're closer to the Ratliff than I knew, John. Ratliffs have no qualms about. Um, Okay, you, you know what happens. Um, no. Phlegm, well here, and they, the image of this dollar pinned to the inside of his coat is a really important one because Gavin doesn't get a lot. And, and, interesting, Gavin's educated. He lives in his head. And if you read this well, you'll know that when we get to his chapters, you're watching a man who overthinks everything. Wagner's so good at this. You know, he gave us Quentin, Benji, He's inside these people in an amazingly rich way. If you get into a Gavin chapter, you're watching a guy who lives in his head. He's just, he overthinks everything. Ratliff, down to earth, listening, watching, um, putting it together. You know, he's just very, very perceptive. Um, and this image of the $20 bill pinned inside Flem's coat is a good one because Rat Ratliff is clear why it's there and Gavin can't understand it. What Ratliff sees that Gavin doesn't is that Flem's waiting for a moment big enough to make it worth 
spending. What's happened now is he sold, he's given Linda, he's given Eula up for to Spain because he knows he can get something out of it. What he gets out of it is the superintendent position at the power plant. So the political machinations are already underway. Eula's been used again, and the result of it is phlegm. He comes in one day and he sees all this brass um, throwaway stuff, and he sees it as an as a opportunity for making money. So he sets up this scam with Tom Tom and um, Tom's Turo, has um, Tom steal it. Um, he, he's already been audited, wants to avoid being caught, to hide this stuff. And then, uh, wait, I want to just stop and think about this just for a minute. In the opening, um, how to do this? Like this. We get the opening chapter from the perspective of Chick, who's not even born yet. He gets it from Gowan, who was born, and Gowan gets a lot of what he does from Harker and Turl. Is that clear? So in an amazing way, in that first chapter, we're already seeing in miniature this principle of what the whole book is about. A community is coming together. There's no way Chick could have told this story without Gowan. There's no way Gowan could have told it without <coughs> Ratliff, Gavin, Harker, Turrell. Because you know from reading it, he has to put things together. One of them can, each one of them can supply something that the others can't. There's no way to tell the whole of it without those people coming together. Buckner's amazing. So in a miniature, he's given us in this opening chapter exactly what people are learning to do. By the way, I'm going to throw this in. To me, it's one of the most, to, I really, I'm, I'm not being light about this. To me, it's one of the most perfect images of the mystical body of Christ that I know of. And Chick makes it even more so. Chick's out of time. Right? Everybody understand what I mean by that? He's not, he's not even born yet. And yet this body's forming. They're, they're, do, they're, they're beginning to take on evil actively as a community. So I, I, I want to skip forward because I want to get to the malice and dinner table, but you remember what happens. Um, Flem goes to Tom Tom and tells him that if he doesn't get that um, the cover back, he's going to fire him. He's and he's using both men. He's setting up their schedule so that he can get out of both of them. And towards the end, he lies and tells him that Tommy Turo really wants his job and he's trying to get rid of them. So he's pitting the two men against each other. On this one night, when, um, when Tom Tom should be at the plant, um, because I think because of, I, I'm assuming, I'm not sure, you correct me, you guys. If, when, um, when the time for a shift come, Tom Tom doesn't show up. And we learn that he's at home, <laughs> I'm going to read this section, waiting in bed for the time that Turo will come in the window. And so he, he catches it, he sees what's happening. So instead of going to work that night, he goes home to catch Turo. I want to pick it up there um, <coughs> on page 27. So Harker's at the plant. Harker knows what's going on. When, when Tom doesn't show, he Harker goes off. That's why he's present. By the way, does everybody see this? 
Faulkner's covering his tracks. He, he wants Harker there to watch, so he's in the ditch watching when Tur goes in the window. He's got to have these people in order to pull this together. Otherwise, how is he going to do it? So as a narrator, he's got to account for himself. It's pretty amazing what he does. On page 27, um, at the top, watch what's happening. And if you're not seeing this, you're not, you're not catching it. Yes, sir, Mr. Harker told Gowan. Harker's telling Gowan what happened, and you know that Chick will get what he gets from Gowan. So already we're watching something pass on. Yes, sir, Mr. Harker told Gowan, I was just in time. It was Turrell's desperation, you see. Go down. So he describes Turrell going in the window, and, and this is <laughs> what unfolds. Turrell comes in, expecting to go to the bed. Tom Tom and this apparently beautiful woman, recently married, and Turrell is known as a cat, what do you call it, a gadabout. I mean, he's a womanizer. He's in and out of women's windows everywhere and around the county. Tom comes in, approaches the bed, um, middle of page 27. Honey bunch, lay calm. Papa's done arrived. <laughs> Papa's done arrived. And Gowan said, how, now, no, see, Chick's getting it from Gowan, and Gowan got it from Harper, and you know, so we're already watching an invisible community, not present to an event, but participating in it. Gowan said, how much even 24 hours afterwards he partook of that incident of Turrell's horrid surprise, who believed that at that moment Tom Tom was two miles away at the power plant waiting for him, Turrell, to appear and relieve him of the cold scoop. Tom Tom lying fully dressed beneath the quilt with a naked butcher knife in his hand when Turrell flung it back. <laughs> this stuff is just... Okay. I hate political correctness. I hate it. You know, you've got Whoopi Goldberg saying there are all these prejudices. She wants to clean this up because she, think, she thinks it's an, an embarrassment. It's a parody. It's a satire. You don't ever want to lose that. It's, it's what comedy's made of. You pictured this moment when he throws the <laughs> covers back and sees a man there with a butcher knife waiting for him. Just exactly time enough, Mr. Harkis said, just exactly on time as two engine switching freight cars. Tom must have made his jump just exactly when Turrell whirled to run. Turrell jumping out of the house into the moonlight again with Tom. Can you, I mean, parody doesn't get any better than Faulkner's giving the, and you can, you know that Faulkner grew up hearing these stories from blacks, exaggerating them this way. You know, you can see Tom, Tom Tom, carrying Turrell, who's twice his weight, I think, against the moonlight. <laughs> I mean, that's just pure local color. It's, it's anecdotal at its best. With Tom Tom and the butcher knife riding on his back, so they look just like what you call them double jointed half horse felders in the old picture books. Centaur, Gowan said, looking just like a centaur. Centaur, I can't, running on its hind legs and trying to catch up with itself with a butcher knife. It's just a funny, I mean, you, you know from this, it's just hilarious to follow this as they're running until finally um, Tom drops the knife and there's this description. <laughs> of running so fast that they're running into space and suddenly falling because they've hit this ditch. And it's when they hit the ditch in this moment of real crisis that everything is resolved. At the bottom of 28, 
The first thing Gowan wanted to know was what Tom Tom used in lieu of the dropped butcher knife. Turk told nothing. He and Tom just sat in the moonlight on the floor of the ditch and talked, going up in the top of 29. Um, they passed by this intense, near-fatal moment. Emotional states like furious rage or furious fear, the two of them sitting there, not only in Uncle Gavin's amicable cuckoldry, <laughs> amicable cuckoldry, but in mutual and complete federation to Tom Tom's home, violated not by Tommy's Turl, but by Flem Snopes, Turl's life and limbs put into frantic jeopardy, not by Tom, but Flem. That's where I come in. There it is, you see? I mean, the narrative's getting put together. But here's this wonderful moment, and I don't know if this goes to your question, Fred, but it, it seems to me that one of the things happening right now, and this is Faulkner at his best, Gavin and Ratliff, Gavin's very educated. Ratliff's really smart. We won't see them take down Flem. I don't want to give the mansion away. The, the great suspense of the mansion is, will anybody get him and who? Here, it's two men who are absolutely illiterate. Who are, who, who, who don't have that headiness that educated people have. They're at a point of killing. Tom's going to kill Turl. They're in a they're in a ditch, and yet they see to the essence of this problem that it was Flem who instigated this, and it's to him that they they want to go. So what they do, you know, they take all the brass and they hide it in the tower. And that's when they have that language at the end where they're talking about the tower as a monument or a, a footprint. So, but it just seems to me that that's significant. I mean, you've got the intellect and the, you know the the world individual of the ones the street smarts. Okay, so yes, intellectual yes. smarts and street smarts. Yes. and those two guys together still haven't figured out how to do it. You got you mean Ratliff and Gavin? Ratliff, yeah, and Gavin. yeah, and then you got two. Totally illiterate guys, yes. about to the point of somebody dying. Right. You know the adrenaline's flowing yes. crazy. Yes. And it's those guys. Yes. That figure out. Yes. You know what's going on. To yeah. me, that's just. Yeah. That's. I mean, it can't be by accident. No, I don't believe it is at all. At all. And and not only that. I mean, look at the way they have this. There's a cunning in street. Par Shakespeare, by the way, believes the same. If you go through Shakespeare's plays, you see the same thing. When the aristocrats try to argue with the lower class, the lower class will, will always be sharper, quicker, because they grow up having to deal with things. Their wits are sharpened. They have to endure. They have to survive. Experience versus knowledge. It's really true, um, and it's true here. It, watch what they do. I mean, they put it in the, in the tower, um, and they've got phlegm on a rope. I mean, he can't do anything. He has to resign. So they've got him. Nobody else in the book ever gets Flem in that position. So Faulkner, that's not an accident. Faulkner knows exactly what he's doing. And if we watch, you know, you read the rest of the novel, the novel as I said, it's, it's just, it's hard to read a Gavin section and not laugh a little bit because he's, he's so intellectual. He just overthinks everything. Um, it's funny to watch. This, so just, a, just a quick note here. It's a, it's a wonderful experience, and it's so subtle because we're watching men who, Ratliff and Gavin, and a young boy, or two young boys, learning to get along with different languages, different abilities, and sometimes laughing at each other because 
in so many ways they're so foolish. You know, um, let's take a look quickly at the at the malice and dinner table forty eight fifty. Interestingly, this this um, chapter is narrated by Chick again, and it's going back to that time when Gowan was at the table with Gavin and Maggie and her husband. So it's it's a dinner table night. It's a respectable family. They're in the center of town. We know that in the last chapter, the last chapter end, with Gavin in the office, Ratliff coming in saying something about having learned to laugh at them finally. Um, be, be, or no, say we're not laughing anymore. It, it's a turning point because everybody's realizing this is too serious. They've got to do something. On page 46, after Ratliff makes that clear that they can't laugh anymore, Gavin, in a very telling way, in his impatience, wants to tell Ratliff to get out of the office, and Ratliff tells him to, te to tell him that, so it ends. At first you laughed at them too, he said, or maybe I'm wrong, and this here is still laughing, looking at me, watching me, too damn shrewd, too damn intelligent. He says that over and over again about Ratliff. Too damn shrewd, too damn intelligent. He knows that Ratliff some ways knows more than he does all the time. Why don't you say it? Say what I said. Get out of my office, Ratliff, he said. Get out of my office, <laughs> Get out of my office, Ratliff, I said. Now, remember, Gallon is present to this. So he's watching these two men struggling over something he doesn't understand very well. So in, in, in the third chapter, when the Malisons are at dinner, Rat Gavin is at the table um, preoccupied, troubled, troubled. And we suppose as readers, and I'm sure Gowan does because we're there in this young 13-year-old boy's mind, not understanding everything and assuming that Gavin's troubled over phlegm, particularly in light of what just happened with, with Gavin telling Ralph to get out of his office. And then suddenly, in, in the midst of this, um, we get this line, top of 49. Grandfather's just being asked to excuse, the dinner's breaking up, and then suddenly Maggie says, top of 49, would you like me to call on her, she said. Call on who, Uncle Gavin said, and even to Gowan, he said it too quick. See the gesture, I mean, we get this sense of how fine it is. Even the boy picks up something, even if he can't explain it. Um, and even Gowan, he said it too quick, because even father caught on there though I don't know about that. Even if I'd been there and no older than Gowan was, I would have known that if I had been about 21 or maybe even less when Mrs. Snow first walked through the square, I not only would have known what was going on, I might have even been Uncle Gavin myself. This is so good. He's 13. But Gowan and Father sounded like he just caught on. But Gowan said Father sounded like he just caught on. He said to Uncle Gowan, I'll be damned. So that's what's been eating you. I, do you all see? People are waking up, <coughs> even in response to themselves. So it's not only a community coming together. They're learning to understand each other better because the father thought he was stewing about phlegm. I think Gowan probably did too. I'll be damned. So that's what's been eating you for the past two weeks. Then he said to mother, no, by Jupiter, my wife, call on that. That What, what was he going to say? I hope everybody's clear on the word there. For... And it, it can't be said at this proper table. 
No, by Jupiter, my wife, call on that, that what, Uncle Gavin said, hard and quick and still mother hadn't moved, just sitting there between them. Well, now you know that they're getting close. Father wants to call her that because he says, um, he's shocked that his wife being the daughter of one of the most respectable men in Jefferson would even have that thought. And he's not going to let their home be violated by her calling this woman in. He, she knows she's having an affair. Everybody in town does. So the men, two men stand up. Here's a feud about to take place. It, it's like the stuff of the Hamlet. Father and Gavin are going to go at it. She steps between them to stop the fight. Um, at the bottom of page 49, boys, 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 mother said, at least sparing my nephew. She said to Gallon, Gallon, don't you really want to be excused? <laughs> what boy in his right mind would want to be excused from this table? Um, he's already said that a couple of times. She keeps trying to get him out of the room politely, and he keeps politely declining. He, do, he won't miss what's about to happen. That really, so she says to the two men, that really will be all, Maggie said. Both of you apologized to me. They did. Now apologize to Gowan. Gowan said they did that too. But I, I'll still be damned if I'm going to let, Father said, just the apology. She stops him, cuts him off. This is really good. This is really good. The, the woman at the table is in charge. Just the apology, please. And notice how courteous, I mean, this is courtly love at its best. It, you don't see fierce temper. Oh, well, Gavin and Father are on the verge of losing their tempers. The mother's saying, knock it off. Just the apology, please, Mother said. Even if Mrs. Snopes is what you say she is, as long as I am what you and Gavin both agree I am, since at least you agree on that, how can I run any risk setting for ten minutes in her parlor? The trouble with both of you is you know nothing about women. Women are not interested in morals. They aren't even interested in unmorals. The ladies of Jefferson don't care what she does. What they will never forgive is the way she looks. No, the Jefferson gentlemen look at her. Speak for your brother. Uh, this is so funny. The men are giving themselves away here. Um, the ladies of Jefferson don't care what she does. What they will never forgive is the way she looks. No, the way the Jefferson gentlemen look at her. Speak for your brother, Father said. I never looked at her in her life. Then so much the worse for me, Mother said, with a mole for a husband. No, moles have a warm heart. A mammoth cave fish. <laughs> remember, remember, Chick's going to be born a year from now. That's not an accident. Then, um, well, I will be damned, Father said. That's what you want, is it? Well, you, you all know what happens. Um, the cotillion ball comes up and Gavin sends um, a corsage to, to Eula. He has to buy one for Maggie. He has to, has to buy one for every woman in town. And then all the husbands have to buy them. And they're all, they're all outraged, Gavin. The dance comes. I want to just quickly look at... Um, uh, I, wish, I wish we had time to look at that episode where Despain runs his coaster by the house. At, because there's a passage, and I'll read it next week when we come together because I, I can tie it in a little bit better. Um, Gowan is so humiliated. This is part of the learning going on. Gallen is so humiliated to see his uncle, his cousin, have to endure that. I mean, there's a passage. He, he is so embarrassed for him. So we watch a sense of shame being passed on because of what Gallen's doing to answer this. And as a result, he gets his friends together, and you know they go out and throw tacks on the road, and they don't work, and then they get this rake and sharpen the spikes and put it out. 
and it does blow the Spain's tires. And the funny thing, I, one of the funnier things for me at least was when Despain's out there, Maggie says, well, don't leave him out there, call him in. So the man who's been doing all this stuff to insult her husband, really insulting. Brother. Brother, brother, sorry. <laughs> um, she invites into the house for tea. And um, I mean, it shows that courtesy goes to your enemies too, that she has to do this. Um, the, the most, the, one of the most insulting things Spain does that is, I think, just before the ball, Gavin receives the package. It's the rake. It's the rake head with two corsages and a rubber. So it's his way of. I mean, it's just a so <coughs> insulting way of rubbing it in Gavin's face that he's having this affair with Gavin. So the night of the the um, the dance comes, and. Um, you know that there's this moment. Let's see, I think it's 75 and 6. Um, this is funny. Um, remember, this is coming from Chick and Ga or Gowan, and he describes the the ball, the evening. You can almost smell everything. It's so. It's such a different atmosphere. Um, at the bottom of page 77, I reckon there was a second or two first when even Mr. Despain had time to be afraid. I reckon there was a second when he even said, hold on here, have I maybe blundered into something that um, not just purer than me, but even braver than me, braver and tougher than me because it's purer than me, cleaner than me? Because that's what it was. Remember, there's this moment when, on page 78, when Despain goes to get Eula and takes her to the dance floor and, and dances, and the, the, he clearly is rubbing it in even more because he dances with her in such a sexually suggestive way that the people stand around aghast. That's the word um, in 78 towards the top. He saw Mrs. Snopes and Mr. Spain dancing together alone in a kind of a gas circle of people. It's, people are just, they know it's an, an affair. Spain has no scruples about going out and taking her out. And Flem doesn't care anything. It's at that point that Gavin goes and grabs Spain and pulls him away from her. And Spain, in response, takes him out to the alley and gives him a beating. Um, um, going over to 80, um, Maggie is patching Gavin up and at home and she brings in a rose that she says is from Eula to show that Eula recognized Gavin's goodness in the middle of 80. And at home too in his bathroom where he could take his vest and collar and tie and shirt and hold a wet towel against the bleeding when mother came in, she had a flower in her hand, a red rose from one of the corsages. Here, she said, she sent it to you. Lie, Uncle Gavin said. You did it. Lie yourself, Mother said. She sent it. No, Uncle Gavin said. Then she should have, Mother said. And now Gowan said she was crying, halfway holding to Uncle Gavin and halfway beating him with both fists, crying, you fool, you fool. They don't deserve you. They aren't good enough for you. None of them are, no matter how much they look and act like, like a like a goddamn whorehouse, none of them, none of them. 
So she's criticizing the whole town for its failure to step in because Gavin, like a chivalric knight, has stood in even though he knew he would get beaten up. So we're watching evil begin to penetrate this town. We're watching a town begin to be aware and at the center of it is the chivalric knight figure, this, gen this southern gentleman who still holds on to these like, courtly ideas of love and a mother, <laughs> God bless her, who tried to help by bringing a flower and you know, standing in for Eula. One, just an interesting comment, we're going to stop here. Interesting comment about what's going on. I, I don't know of another writer, it, you have to go to Dante and Shakespeare in my mind, maybe home, but Dante and Shakespeare for sure. When you watch these characters as you read, there's a richness you won't find in another novelist. None, none, none. Gavin will, Chick will constantly say, we, I mean, we in the sense that Jefferson. He stands for Jefferson. It's who Chick is. He's the voice that, the sensibility that Gavin and Ratliff are trying to nurture that represents a community, this we. When you read the story, you can't, you can't enter into the consciousness of any of these people, particularly Gavin and Ratliff, because they're the ones who tell the narrative story, without feeling that they carry everybody in them. They're not a modern American off in an isolated individualistic world. They bear in themselves the whole community. And we see it all the time. Maggie's, clearly Maggie understands everything. The sign of that, remember that evening, that evening on the dinner table scene, I think everybody thought he was stewing about Phlegm. She was the only one that saw, knew, that he was stewing about Eula. And she says, do you want me to invite her? I mean, that's when the, you know, the fight breaks out. And here in this scene at the end when she's patching him up, you're watching characters, we're aware of the richness of characters as we watch them do what they do because they carry so many people with them. It's not just themselves. So there's a richness and a depth in everything they do, a pathos and a humor I, I, I don't think we'll find, and I, I don't know of an, a contemporary writer who does what Faulkner does. He, he's just extraordinary. You know, you, you beginning, you saw it with Ike and the Cow and Mink, and now we're watching it in a town. So, so um, one last question. I want to just do this briefly because our time's up. Any thoughts on why Faulkner chose this narrative structure to, to present the novel the way he does? He's got two men. He's got Chick, who's not even born, and Gallon. He's got two older men, a teenager, and somebody who's not even born. Why does he do that? <coughs> Should we put this off until next week? I, I think he does that so that you get the 360 degree view. If you don't, if you don't, it's like we, we used to, in, when we had executive training back 
with a company I used to work with. And we, one of the exercises that you go through is we 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 have you know all you know a group of guys and girls, and we we get off on one side of the room, and one person would tell another person something, and then that would that would pass through. You know, somebody would tell somebody, somebody would tell somebody, and that would pass through all the way through. Hmm. And and the interesting thing is, by the time we got over to this side of the room, the story was completely different. different. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I and I think the, the the thing the thing that I see anyway in this is that by virtue of getting the story told from a, a bunch of different perspectives, yeah. it has more richness that way than it would if one or two characters and wholeness and wholeness. Yeah. And and if you don't get it from different perspectives. Then you don't really get the true story. Yeah. You get somebody else's yeah. version of that yeah. story. Yeah. If that makes any sense. Oh yeah, it does. And one thing that I anybody else. The one thing that I would add is it's intergenerational, which to me is so important. They're they're mentoring Gowan and Chick, and we know by by virtue of that fact that that. Both of those young boys will survive this, and we know from Chick because he keeps saying, "When I say we, I mean Jefferson." That he's speaking. Remember that communal? What was it? anonymous communal? Or in the in the Go Down Moses, we were talking about the narrative, and there's that line, anonymous communal. And I said that was one of the most because we don't have a, a, a narrator that we can identify in the beginning. This narrative voice comes in and starts presenting things. It's a little bit like an epic. But we get that, that phrase later, I think it's anonymous, communal, wasn't that it? Yeah. Communal, yeah. That it's one of the most beautiful ways of expressing the, the impersonal attitude of a narrator because we know that sometimes we let our own feelings be so important, what we feel, that present, prevents us from identifying with a larger world. Um, there's this sense of a we that's, that's forming in Chicken Gowan that's going to be carried forward in time so that in whatever, whatever ways they learn to deal with Snopes, it's part of a culture heritage that's being passed forward. These kids, another way to put, put this is you could say something of a chivalric knight is forming in Gowan and Chick. We see it explicitly with Gowan, particularly when, when uh, Flem drives that roadster by. I'll read it next week. Gowan's hurt. Flem. This, huh? Just just Gowan, what did I say? You said Flem. It's just Flem didn't drive a roadster Gow- Gowan, oh, when Despain was. Gowan is hurt. He's, he, he describes himself watching his cousin, his uncle, watching Gowan and, and Gavin and knowing how humiliating it is. He carries that in him. Let me put this another way. We're watching Gowan, some Gavin and Ratliff mentor these two young boys. We know that it's being carried forward. There's going to be this funny scene in, when we meet next time. It's so funny. Chick is five. Chick is five years old. Ratliff is meeting him for ice cream, taking him an ice cream, and he's talking about Montgomery Snopes and what he's doing in this studio. And it's funny to watch because he can't be explicit. He can't say what's going on, and yet he's already giving him some sense that there's something not good. This is, he's five years old. Let me put it, I mean, we're watching, one of the central themes you can say of this work is education. 
They are educating these kids to deal with evil, to, to help them. How many, how many couples today help their kids take responsibility for evil? How many, how many, I mean, this is five years old. In our culture, kids are raised to be successful, wealthy, get ahead. How many people, how many parents actually begin to teach their kids to be aware of evil and a way to deal with it? Most Americans have their mind on finances, success, money, power, security. Are any of those issues here for these men? Not one. Not one. They are beginning to take responsibility for evil and answering it. And they're helping to form that spirit in these two young, this young boy and what is virtually an infant <laughs> when, when Chick comes into the world. So. It's a wonderful story about a community growing in time, um, sort of growing into itself. After its loss, in, and does the North have a clue? After the Civil War. I'm not aware. You won't find anything like this in the North. This is a Southern culture that lost the war, that had everything that it held dearly destroyed. And it's now having to become aware of itself. That's what we're dealing with, I think, in this trilogy. Let's stop. Okay.